Welcome to Exploring the Ancient Forest. More than 20 years ago, Australian death doom metal band Paramecium released their sophomore album Within the Ancient Forest. The album's lyrics were based on the book Within the Ancient Forest, written by Andrew Tompkins, the band's vocalist and bassist. In this podcast, we celebrate and explore the plot, the context, and the symbolic significance of the story behind this piece of classic doom metal history. Well, hi, welcome to episode one, the first real episode of this podcast. This is to be the first in a series of five episodes in which I read out my analysis of the lyrics to Paramecium's Within the Ancient Forest in light of the book. I make connections between the lyrics and the book itself. Now, I'll assume that you, dear listeners, definitely know Paramecium's album, and you may or may not know the book itself. It doesn't really matter that much. If you know the lyrics, then you know the basic plot line. And so, here's the wonderful news. Spoilers aren't possible. Of course, Denial finds the Garen Sword. And of course, he finds the Fire Tree. If you haven't read the book yet, or if you need a good excuse to start reading it, or to read it again, you can use this podcast as a running commentary. The episode titles will always indicate which chapters of the book are being covered in the analysis, so that you always have the chance to read along or hit pause until you've finished the next batch of chapters if that's what you want to do. It's entirely up to you. Just as a little reminder, the following text was written by myself back in 2012, and it's just a short analysis in which I try to show how the album lyrics line up with the plot of the book. The first part, however, is not really about the album lyrics because it is titled Introduction and Book Chapters Not Covered in the Lyrics. And we will now cover chapters 1 to 4 of the book. Quote from Blaise Pascal's Pensée We are generally the better persuaded by the reasons we discover ourselves than by those given to us by others. End of quote. And another quote, this time from Richard Rohr's Falling Upward, Chapter 7. The end is already planted in us at the beginning, and it gnaws away at us until we get there freely and consciously. End of quote. Within the Ancient Forest is more than your ordinary metal concept album. It is a whole concept within itself. As stated in the booklet's liner notes, bassist, lyricist, and vocalist Andrew Tompkins has written a book on which the lyrics are based, a book that is actually enjoyable. But because there are more people who know Paramecium's first few albums than people who know the book, I will center my thoughts on the album lyrics. Please feel free to contact me if you have any comments or questions. I'm also quite sure that Andrew Tompkins himself will be glad to answer any questions you may have as he was years ago when I wrote to him while reading and translating his book. Ihr habt richtig gehört. Es gibt bald eine deutsche Übersetzung. Although Within the Ancient Forest is a rather thin novelette with a linear plot, it contains some solid fantasy mythology. 
I do encourage any readers to get a copy of the novelette if possible, and that will soon be easier than ever. But before I get into the CD lyrics, allow me to shovel in a few remarks about the concept itself, as well as a quick overview of what happens in the book prior to where the storyline of the album begins. Within the Ancient Forest is an allegorical tale. This means that, as with probably every allegory in the world, the names of characters, objects, and places are telling names. A lot of the elements in the tale are actually symbols of something either known from common experience or coming from the author's own faith and views at the time. In writing a philosophical and at times religious allegory, Tompkins aligns himself with a long tradition, of which Dante Alighieri, John Bunyan, Charles Kingsley, or C.S. Lewis were part. If you want to know more about this rich and exciting strand of literature, I can recommend the book Christian Mythmakers by Roland Hine. That's R-O-L-L-A-N-D-H-E-I-N. But please be aware that calling something an allegory doesn't automatically imply that everything within the story really stands for something else. You will find certain elements in every allegory that are part of the fictional world without pointing to any concrete entity in the moral or spiritual realm. This is not necessarily a weakness. It happens because a really good allegory is also a really good story. I think that there is a very gradual continuum from almost completely allegorical tales on the one side, like Plato's Allegory of the Cave or Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, over tales with some allegorical features, like Lewis's Narnia stories, to tales which hardly anyone would call allegorical, but which nevertheless seem to have an overarching meaning or moral. Take Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol, or some of the parables of Jesus, for that matter. Here is a short list of some of the telling character names that occur in the story. The protagonist whose journey we follow is called Denial. That's D E hyphen. N-Y-L. For most of the story, this is his name. This is pretty obviously what it means, denial. Denial is a man who professes to be searching for the truth while unwittingly denying the most important truth until the very end of the story. This is why he is renamed at the end of the story to show that his characteristics have changed. The mysterious lady who accompanies denial for a long time is called Destiny. This name is a bit harder to interpret. It dawned on me only slowly the first time I read the book that she is meant to represent the Holy Spirit, among other things. There is a passage towards the end of the book that indirectly makes this clear, at least to anyone familiar with the precepts of Christianity. So why is her name Destiny? Well, a short and probably quite useless answer that I might offer is that she seems able to give herself any name and appearance as she wishes so that this is by no means her only or her truest name. Another explanation would be that she leads denial to his destiny, or that it is his destiny to meet her. If you're still not happy now, we might try contrasting her name with that of Free Will the Falcon. The Free Will versus Destiny dichotomy opens up a whole philosophical field that I'm not sure Andrew was actually aiming at. But the names of the protagonist's two most faithful guides actually provide an interesting contrast and suggest the two sides of the determinism debate. Is everything determined or predestined, or do we have a truly free will? Now, apart from contrasting with destiny, free will seems to represent more than just denial's will, whether it's free or not free. 
For lack of a better expression, the falcon often externalizes his owner's emotions. This makes him similar to the so-called demons in Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials trilogy, or the bird selves of people in George MacDonald's Lilith. Free will is a totem, an animal guide, an externalized part of denial's personality in animal shape. Free will also often flies ahead and has premonitions, so he seems to represent denial's intuition. By the way, the only thing that ever really harms free will is the fossilized forest, a place of mere tradition that kills all true vitality. But I'll get to that in due time. One more name should be mentioned here, that of the Garen Sword. The spelling of this name is meant to be ambiguous, either Garen Sword or Garen's Word. So it contains a pun. This creative and not always straightforward use of language is definitely something to look out for. And by the way, by giving the sword a name and thus a character of its own, Andrew once again aligns himself with a very long tradition that goes way back beyond Tolkien. The album begins with the song In Exordium, whose lyrics cover the second half of chapter 5 of the book. The first image that the album lyrics center on is that of a boat with a single passenger silently floating across a pool of water in the moonlight. The previous four chapters of the book tell the story of who this passenger is and how he got there. So what has happened before in Exordium? Here is a short recapitulation. Denial is the first-person narrator who in the story is a young man who lives in a mountainous region of an unknown country with his teacher, an old man with a very long beard, his horse and his falcon and a few servants. His main purpose in life seems to be his studies. He spends a lot of time in the library. He seems never to have left this lonely little mountain home in his whole life. I don't recall reading about any further details about his past, who his parents were, and how he came to live in this lonely place. The only time his father is mentioned, we learn that the teacher had also taught Denial's father and sent him off on a similar journey back in the days. Denial himself doesn't seem to know a whole lot about himself, which of course is a main point about his character. His very featurelessness qualifies him as the central figure of the allegory. All we really know is that he is a young man eager to learn. He's an everyman. The small community in which he lives is reminiscent of a medieval monastery, with the one exception that the scriptorium in which we would expect scribes to be busy writing, copying, and translating texts has been replaced by a library where books are not created, but only read. Denial is very much on the receptive side of life. His only job seems to be to lean back, think, and ponder. His teacher is also more of a stock figure, the type who could be played by Liam Neeson, who acts as a guide to Denial's thinking and not much else. Interestingly, the books that Denial reads sometimes contain glimpses of a fantasy world, heroic tales of warriors, dragons, and legendary swords, but Denial sees them as mere fiction. Which could mean that in the beginning we, as readers, are also supposed to be unaware of being in a fantasy world at all. One day, his teacher finds out that Denial has been spending his nights reading a very special book, The Book of Garin's Tale, which tells of the adventures of a legended king and his disciples. The parallels to the New Testament gospel are already clear. And this is where the trouble begins. 
Denial's confession that there were things in that book he didn't understand leads the teacher, who represents reason, to give some seemingly irrational-sounding advice. And by advice, I mean orders. Denial's teacher orders him to immediately set off on a long, wearisome journey with no apparent aim or object but to learn what the book is about. Denial briefly considers the possibility that his bearded teacher has been enjoying a little too much pipeweed, but decides that he had better listen to him since, so far, he's always been right. So he goes on the journey of a lifetime, taking only his horse named Descartes, that's D-E-K-A-A-T, his falcon and some scanty provisions with him. Descartes gets his name from René Descartes and thus represents the clinically rationalist philosophy of the Enlightenment. So his teacher, who represents reason itself, sends him on a journey which is to be powered by rationalism. The journey goes quite well until they reach the ancient forest of the title, which is practically Mirkwood out of Tolkien's Hobbit tale, a huge, dark, and dangerous forest with exactly one slightly less dark and dangerous path leading right through it. Descartes grows more and more uncomfortable as they enter into the forest. There is a very powerful scene in which Denial has a dream of being threatened by his horse in human form. By the time they reach the forest pool of the fifth chapter, the horse not only refuses to carry Denial, but goes raving mad and races off. Now some interpretation. I take this to mean that the rationalist mindset with which Denial had set out at the break of day will no longer be sufficient for him when surrounded by the doubt, despair, and uncertainty represented by the archaic forest. What rationalism actually did a few hundred years ago was a kind of reduction. This was the first time ever that people thought that everything in the world could be explained by reason alone. So rationalism didn't mean the discovery of reason, but that people thought reason was everything they would ever need. And this is what Descartes, or the horse Descartes, represents in this tale. Pure rationalism. His bearded teacher, on the other hand, also represents reason, but infused with a deeper kind of wisdom. He knows enough to know that he doesn't know enough. In other words, reason has sent denial on his path, but mere rationalism will not get him far on that path. Denial's bearded teacher has sent him off, has sent him away, being rational enough to not be a rationalist. By the way, if you need a little antidote to Descartes, uh, or you want to know more about the Enlightenment as seen by one of the few contemporary philosophers who dared not to blend into his rationalistic surroundings, namely Blaise Pascal, I recommend the book Christianity for Modern Pagans by Peter Kreeft. That's K-R-E-E-F-T. So that's where the lyrics begin. Denial is already in the forest, he's with his falcon but without his horse, and his path is blocked by a large body of water, but fortunately he has found a boat and can now attempt to cross the pool. So in the next few episodes, we'll get on with the lyrics themselves and see what they do on the backdrop of the book. My contemplating Right, so that was the first part of my analysis.
As I said last time, I look forward to hearing from you. You can find this podcast on Facebook if you just look for Ancient Forest Podcast or Exploring the Ancient Forest. On Twitter, the handle is EAF underscore podcast. Um, You can find us on Instagram, or you can even write an old-fashioned email to ancientforestpodcast at gmail.com. And most importantly, you can find Andrew Tompkins' website at www.abtompkins.com. That's A-B-T-O-M-P-K-I-N-S dot com. All right, that was it for me. Talk to you later.